0: There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy There'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see
1: Be hey, a movie Yeah, we're gonna hey, be, be a movie Starring everybody And me There'll be heroes bold. There'll be comedy And a lot of fuss that ends for us real happily Be hey, a movie We can watch it all develop Starring everybody And me will take the world Set it on its Come on, join in. We're gonna start right here. And we are gonna start right here. Hello. <clears throat> you are listening to a <laughs> Radilage and broadcasting Premier podcast triple feature. I'm your host, the mandated Reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattilage. And the man to my left is gonna fix your tongue box. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Sean Comer, you're not. How do you do, sir?
0: I'll fix your tongue box good, baby.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, tonight on the Marquee, we're talking Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, John Carter, and Barbarella. And what do these three films have in common? They're all science fiction uh, movies. They all bombed. And (laughs) two of them were based on French comics, and one of them was based on a series of novels uh, and more importantly than all that, they're just three movies I wanted to watch and I grouped them together and Sean's looking for uh, for work. So I was like, hey, Sean, I want to talk about these movies just because I want to talk about them. want to talk about them with me. And he was like, yes, sir. So here we are.
0: Two and- of these movies absolutely deserve to bomb.
1: <laughs> had you seen any of these three before I pitched them?
0: Uh, I had seen Barbarella. I okay. had kind of been curious for... Years and years about John Carter, because mm-hmm. the previews and other materials that I saw always, always made it look, you know, kind of encouraging. But I remember that it flopped on release. But I, I was never like, really exactly real clear on
1: that Like it was a historically bad flop. Like, like Disney had a huge write down. Uh, yeah, it was a trade story. How bad this thing bombed.
0: Yeah, yeah. H- historically, is not hyperbole we sometimes jokingly say something is so bad it should be studied Mm -hmm. in this case no it's quite literally a case study in what not to do when making a sprawling sci-fi epic and I mean Valerian I was also kind of familiar with because it was that movie that came out after Dane DeHaan had already been complicit in the on-screen murder of the amazing Spider-Man.
1: Oh, that's... I knew I recognized him. That's that's Harry Oz. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. Um, well, I don't need any more convincing he can't act. <laughs> oh,
0: God. This one... The, the, the experiment with trying to make Dane DeHaan like the, like the next big Hollywood... Young Hollywood leading man was mm. short fucking lived. Yeah. Because um, I, I remember when he was cast in uh, The Amazing Spider-Man, I think he had made some other like, reasonably well-received indie art house flick mm-hmm. or something. And then after that, this came out. And then I, I've heard fuck all about anything else he's ever done since then.
1: Yeah, we can talk just briefly about that when we get into, into the film. But it does go to the idea of there are big screen actors, there are small screen actors, there are TV actors. Some can do all three. Some, mm-hmm. that's all they can do. <laughs> you know? And I, I feel like Dane DeHaan is one of those guys who can probably make a career out of doing very small indie films or being... A bit player and something a little bit bigger, but yeah, him as a lead in anything is a is a recipe for disaster. And um, the other gal that's in this thing, Cara oh, De- Delavine, yeah. Uh, yeah, oof, they, <laughs> they they tried with her too. I actually just saw it's funny. Um, I follow James Corden on TikTok, and I saw her rap battle that she did with James Franco and James Corden, and she, you know, she was fine in that. She was funny. But um, you know, just like there are big, small, and, and little screen uh, uh, TV screen actors, there are women who I think if they're tightly controlled in a in a in a film environment, you can probably get a passable uh, performance out of them. But if you give them too much screen time, it really it's it's kind of like with wrestling. You you start to uh, what's the word that we always use? Um, uh, it's right on the tip of my tongue, Sean. Help me. Uh, 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 expose. Thank you. Yeah. You, you, you. yeah, you start to expose the fact that their talent is limited and it mm-hmm. very much needs a handler that if you give them too much screen time, it shows that they, they do not have the range or the talent to pull it off. And well, that I was true. Well, I mean, look, if we're talking about being
0: timely, some actors just kind of take a little while
1: to really find their niche right and sometimes maybe they get pushed into the spotlight way too fast and it crushes them
0: right right um uh, okay keanu reeves is one of those that uh, that i think took a little while to really kind of find where he belonged yeah um yeah because 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 very because very early on thanks to his roles in point break and bill and ted He was just kind of typecast, if not by Hollywood directly, at least in the minds of audiences, as the derpy, kind of slow-witted, affable bro-dude. Right. Um, And it took years of movies like The Devil's Advocate and John Wick and The Matrix Mm-hmm. before he really kind of became cemented and respected as anything else even Nicolas cage mm-hmm. kind of has a, a kind of a niche and a genre all of, all his own and it's we're kind of learning to appreciate him not even necessarily like, like ironically
1: mm-hmm. but like the way we appreciate tommy wiseau well look at like john cena uh, and the rock right they were used very but, yeah. sparingly in early roles and very not even not so much sparingly, but they very specifically, they were put into certain things and they, and yeah. they yeah. both took separately time to develop their craft to where they could stretch and do different things. And they both kind of, mm-hmm. and they both found themselves in, in, in family comedies. Mm-hmm. And then they went back to action again, once they had their chops with them. And so, you know, I, I'm not against, taking a pretty face and throwing it up on screen. I am against, you know, the idea that just because you did that means you're gonna suddenly get a uh, star making performance out of them. And it's like, not, no, it's that some of these people need time to cook. And it, it would do well <laughs> yeah. if their managers would actually give them that time.
0: Yeah, and I mean, well, you mentioned Kara Devlin. Uh, she's certainly found a lot of work in, re- in recent years and mm. seems to be hitting her stride. But at this point, the best descriptor I can come up with is, it's like if you ordered Brie Larson off of Wish.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny.
0: Not, not in I, 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 I Y'all motherfuckers who hated on Captain Marvel as we're <laughs> Brie Larson has no personality. Y'all shut the fuck up. I never want to hear it again. After I sat through all two hours plus of, plus of that, I never want to hear again. about that fallacious dirty dirty lie that she has no that she has no charisma i have stared
1: into the vacuum of personality and it stared vacantly right back at me i've never heard brie larson has no personality i've heard she's had no ass but i've not heard she has no i mean i've actually heard the opposite about we. you and i got into a discussion about this where the people Mm -hmm. i i talked to i don't want to get off on a whole brie larson tangent but the, the, the the comments about brie larson was that she was twatty not lacking in personality um, and that she was built up like the to. number one. I,
0: I, I've, I've heard, a have heard a little bit of both. I mean, yeah. I, I heard some people complain that that was their, that was their complaint about her Carol Danvers. Yeah. Was that she was just boring. She was monotone. She had no, mm-hmm. she had no personality. Yeah.
1: All right. Let's get her. into, let's get into Valerian here specifically. Yeah, sorry. That's what we're going to start off with tonight. Valerian and the City yeah. of a Thousand Planets um, is a 2017 English-language French 3D space opera written and directed by Luc Besson and co-produced by Besson and his wife, Virginia Silva. <laughs> uh, it is based on... <laughs> it is, I, get, I get progressively less intelligible as I said that. Uh, it is based on the French science fiction comic series Valerian and Laureline, written by Pierre-Christine and illustrated by Jean-Claude Maleric. It stars uh, Dane DeHaan as Valerian and Cara Delevingne as Laureline. Uh, It has Clive Owen, Rihanna. Oof, Rihanna in this. Ethan Hawke, Herbie Hancock, Chris Rue, and Rutger Hauer in supporting roles.
0: Oh, come on. I thought thought Rihanna did arguably the best imitation of a human being in the entire (laughs) thing.
1: Well, that's one take. Vested uh, independently, financed, and personally funded the film. With a production budget of $223 million, it is both the most expensive European and independent film ever made. Um, it was considered a box office bomb following its release in the United States. Yeah, at a budget of um, $205 million on the high end in dollars net, the box office take was $226 million. So... They, you know, th- this was a big deal for STX at the time, uh, from what I remember. They were really banking on this thing to be a franchise. And, like, STX is a great little, like, indie studio with some real fascinating film series. But they can't catch a break in terms of really, like, creating something that that's a money printer. And this was supposed to be that, and it did not resonate with people. So, um. Let's talk about it here. In the 28th century, due to the cooperation between the Earth and the extraterrestrial peoples, the former International Space Station has been expanded until its mass threatens to cause gravitational disruption to the Earth itself. Message! Relocated to <laughs> deep space, it becomes Alpha, a space-traveling city inhabited by millions of species from around the planet. A police division is created by United Human Federation to preserve peace throughout the galaxy. Among its staff are the arrogant major Valerian and his partner, No Nonsense. <laughs> she don't need no man, neither. Sergeant Laureline. En route to a mission, Valerian dreams of a planet, Mjol, uh where a low-tech uh, humanoid race lives peacefully. They fish for pearls containing enormous amounts of energy and use animals to replicate them. Wreckage begins plummeting from the sky like it does, followed by a huge spacecraft that causes an explosion, annihilating every being on the planet. Some of the inhabitants entered a discarded vessel, accidentally trapping themselves inside. But the planet's princess, Liho Minya, is uh, stranded outside. Just before her death, she conveys a telepathic message. Shaken, Valerian awakes. Analysis reveals he might have received a signal from across time and space. He learns that his mission to retrieve the new computer, converter, it's, it is the last of its kind and currently in the hands of the black market dealer, Egon Cyrus Valerian asks Laureline to marry him, but she brushes him off. Because sure. Uh, in a marketplace, I'm oh, planning what are you coming back a- about.
0: <laughs> in, in a,
1: yeah. In a marketplace on planet Carrion in an alternate dimension, because that's what this movie needed. Valerian disrupts a meeting between Egon and two hooded figures who resemble a humanoid from his vision. They seek the converter, the small animal in his vision. Valer, uh, Valerian and Laureline recover the converter and steal one of the energy pearls. Aboard this ship, Valerian learns that Mule was destroyed 30 years earlier, and all information about it is classified. They return to Alpha, where Commander Aaron Filet Flit, Mignon informs them that the center of the station has been irradiated by an unknown force, rendering it highly toxic. Troops sent into the area have not returned, and the radiation is increasing. Laureline and Valerian are assigned to protect the, human, the commander during an inter, interstation summit to discuss the crisis against the commander's wishes. Laureline maintains possession of the converter. During the summit, unidentified humans suddenly attack, incapacitating everyone and kidnapping Filet. Valerian chases the kidnappers through the irradiated area, but crashes a space plane during the pursuit. Laureline enlists alien information brokers known as Dogen Daggerwis to track Valerian and finds him unconscious at the end of the irradiated zone. She rouses him, but it is kidnapped by a primitive tribe, the Bulin Bathers of Planet Gora. This is why everyone hates science fiction, by the way. And presented at their emperor's dinner as the choice course. Valerian infiltrates the tribe's territory with the help of the shape-shifting Bubble. They rescue Laureline and escape, but Bubble is mortally wounded, because of course. Valerian and Laureline venture further into the irradiated area, discovered it is not dangerous, don't you understand, And that it contains the remains of some antique spacecraft. They reach a shielded hall where they find humanoids known as the Pearls, with an unconscious fillet. The Pearl's leader, Emperor Haben Lamai explained that her people lived peacefully on Mule until white people crossed the Atlantic. No, until uh, a battle occurred between the Federation and another faction. Fillet, the human com- uh, commander, ordered the use of fusion missiles that disabled the enemy mothership and sent it crashing into the planet, annihilating Mule. Upon her passing, Princess Leho Minya Pocahontas transferred her soul into Valerian's body. When the surviving... Uh, Pearls were trapped in a downed space vehicle from the battle. They managed to repair it and learn the human technology and history. They eventually came to Alpha, where they assimilated more knowledge and built a ship of their own. They needed the converter and Pearl in order to launch their ship and find a planet to create their homeworld. Philad admits in his role in the genocide, but argues it was necessary to end the war, as was the cover up. To prevent humans from losing their credibility and influence in Alpha, Valerian and Laureline disagree, arguing that the commander is trying to avoid the consequences of his actions. When Philip becomes belligerent, Valerian knocks him out. Valerian hands over the pearl he took from Egon, and Laureline persuades him to return the converter. While the pearls prepare the spacecraft for takeoff, Philip's K-Tron robot soldiers attack the pearls and the government soldiers sent to assist Valerian, but are ultimately defeated. The spacecraft departs and Philip is arrested. Valerian and Laureline are left to drift aboard an Apollo Command service module, and Laureline answers Valerian's marriage proposal with a maybe as they wait for rescue. All right, boy, is that a mouthful, Sean. What do you think about this one? Okay, well, let's start with Dane DeHaan.
0: Mom, can we have Keanu Reeves? You have Keanu Reeves at home, honey. (laughs) Behold, Keanu Reeves at home. (laughs) I just, from the time this little wiener... Opens his fucking mouth. He absolutely backs up what I have been saying on our shows for years. And that is that. And this is. This might be about as close as I ever get to probably agreeing with Pat Mullen on something. But fuck it. I'm going to go with it. Um, Some actors. Some actors of Mm -hmm. either sex. Have the presence to carry action roles. Sure. to be the kind of aggressive, intimidating force of nature that they need to be. Dane DeHaan is not one of those people. <laughs> I, I was watching this while I was working and what was the fucking line? He he bursts into a scene and says, I too serve a greater purpose. The law... I laughed hysterically for about a solid 30 seconds. It's like, done. Any prospects you ever had of being taken seriously as an action lead, done. They are over. Never again. Because it's a wonder that every alien in that space
1: didn't just turn to him and go,
0: fuck you.
1: <laughs> you know what he reminded me of? Um, which is the doofus actor from Terminator 3, the male lead? What was his name? Terminator 3. Ah, It's going to click and you're going to be like, you're damn right. Yeah, I'll look it up, but it was one of those things where it's just like, you you can't Some of these guys are not meant to be male leads. They just can't Uh, carry the load. No,
0: I'll I'll tell you which one actually came to mind first. And that is, I remembered seeing Leonardo DiCaprio in fucking Blood Diamond.
1: Okay, Nick Stahl, by the way. Nick Stahl. You know, know, know Leonardo DiCaprio on Wish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, no, but I mean,
0: what what I'm saying is, I remember when Blood Diamond came out, it wasn't Mm -hmm. It was when he was getting a lot of dramatic leads, but mm-hmm. he was still very, very baby-faced. He didn't have a real a real kind of masculine, forceful quality to his voice or, or anything. He didn't yeah. carry himself with that kind of convincing quality of like a Daniel Craig or a Jason Statham or a Hugh Jackman or a Dwayne Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I saw it, and I just no, <laughs> no. I yeah. You go and stick. You go and stick that semi that semi automatic pistol in somebody in somebody's face without the without the benefit of plot armor. The reality is, whoever's face you stick it in is probably going to
1: grab it and shatter your nose with it. <laughs> uh, so let me, I'm let not me say- fine. No. Let me save, let me save my piece here on this movie, and then you can have the remaining time before we move on to the next one. Uh, it you have to have, I, I think, crafting science fiction for the screen takes a deft hand. It's not easy, and I I, I think science fiction for a a general audience to to, to support a two hundred million dollar budget. Really takes a steady hand of some of the best people in Hollywood to make it come to life. Mm -hmm. You know, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, like I know it's not science fiction, I know it's high fantasy, but Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings is really a case study in the best of the best, putting to you know, with the right material, putting together something that not only reached a mass audience, but did that, that, supported the material, and the material itself was highly resonant with people over generations. That is not easy. Uh, that isn't an easy thing to replicate, and you're you know, well, I'll be the first one to read a French comic and say, Oh, this would make a fun movie, yeah, for about 50 million dollars, it might, and then maybe if it hits an audience well, you, you up the budget to 100 million. You don't start out with a French comic that like people in the United States have never heard of, and then decide you're gonna do you know, a Lord of the Rings-esque Star Wars sci-fi epic with it, mm-hmm. and then expect the audiences to flock to it. Sci-fi mm-hmm. is still, a, it, even as, as sci-fi has, in the, in the sense that it's mainstream, it's well-known. People know it exists. People, you know, they know it's out there, and there's certainly been hundreds of thousands of sci-fi films over the decades since, you know, since the talkies. But mm-hmm. it's not, it's still not, it's still really not a mainstream genre. You know, Date night for people is generally not science fiction. It's romantic comedies, you know, or comedies in general or whatever, you know, big budget action movie. Like sci-fi is its own weird thing. And so I think Valerian, it's one of those things where I could see where it would appeal to hardcore science fiction people um, and hardcore high fantasy people, space fantasy people, because they'll take the time to kind of sit and appreciate what's going on here. But it's a convoluted plot with act with, with lead actors who are not engaging and are not personable in any way. Cara Delevingne, I mean, she makes Brie Larson. You mentioned it before. You, she makes Brie Larson and Captain Marvel look like goddamn Halle Berry um, in anything. <laughs> She's like these are not people I want to spend two hours with. And this is yet, and this is another long movie. This is this clocked in at. Um, over two hours and 17 minutes, dude. I don't know if you talk to people in, on planet Earth. Most of the earthlings I talk to can't do more than 90 minutes. You start getting to about the two hour mark, and they're like, Check it out uh, yeah, of most movies. Yeah. You want enough people to support a 200 million dollar movie to sit for over two hours in a place where people's names are, and who's a while they're chasing after the. On planet Hakavach. like five minutes into that, you've lost most of your your audience, and that's and that's just a fact. Um, so just as a case study in how not to make a film, I, I that, that's part of what I wanted to talk about. But yeah, Dane DeHaan is not believable in this role. Like, other than the fact that like he just does not. You said it before; he does not come across as like a hefty action star. I no. know.
0: No, across
1: the guy who's just You know, who's talking big and about to get Thrown down a flight of stairs by the, by the Yeah, cool
0: okay boat look, the think, think about that very First mm-hmm. shot of him Think mm-hmm. about how the first time That you see a character Is going to set the tone for what You expect from their mm-hmm. performance Okay, think about the movies that Do that well, think about mm-hmm. Terminator, think about the first Time that you see Schwarzenegger as yeah. the T eight hundred. Think about the first time that you saw Hugh Jackman as mm-hmm. Logan in yeah. X Men. Think about the first time you saw Daniel Craig in a true action sequence in a Bond in a Bond movie. Um, Jason Statham in The Transporter or the Guy Ritchie movies for that mm-hmm. for that matter. Right. Also good examples. Any of any of those. Dwayne Johnson in just about fucking anything. Right. Okay. And then, Vin Diesel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Another great example. Mm-hmm. Vin Diesel in um, either Pitch Black or The Fast and the Furious, in right. particular. Or and now, yeah. And now, think of the first time you see da- You see Dane DeHaan. Right. He looks like some bitchy little sixteen-year-old suburban trust fund kid that everybody flocks to because his parents are out of town all out of town all the time. He has satellite TV, and he has a penchant for getting the keys to his dad's lifted 4x4. Four four. There,
1: I swear to God, there's like a class of actors where there must be like a casting agent going, we need a Leonardo DiCaprio type. Okay, well, we've got Nick Stahl. We've got the kid from uh, Boardwalk Empire. We've got Dane DeHaan. Which one do you want? We, we, have, yeah. we have a bunch yeah. of Leonardo DiCaprio lookalikes.
0: Yeah, and this... And this little dipshit is supposed to be a major in a military
1: branch? Right. And then the first thing they have – but, Sean, it's even worse, because the first thing they have him do is pining for – look, you want a little romance in your science fiction? Can we please be brought there, brought along the way? Your opening sequence with these two asshole characters is, I woke up from a nightmare. I want to marry you. She's like, no, I have no time. I'm a busy businesswoman who has no time for a big, strong man. And you're like, I already hate these two people, and I've just met them, and now I have to spend the remaining two hours of this movie with them. Gag me with a spoon. Yeah.
0: You're 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 touching on so much that I want to elaborate on. Okay, well, yeah. I'm going to
1: give you the last four minutes of uninterrupted time to elaborate. Go.
0: Okay, I don't know that I'm going to need four minutes, but yeah, here goes.
1: Um, <laughs> then take a bow when yeah, you're done.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you you touched on our you touched on our leading couple, um, Valerian himself is just about the most undeserving gary stew protagonist <laughs> i have come across in a long long time because yeah you talked about science fiction being kind of a a niche genre a niche genre one that's hard to really win over the mainstream with well part of the problem that some people don't realize is even if you're making science fiction even if you have all of these limitless horizons That you can play around with You're still going to be subject To the laws of good character development And the fact is Nothing he achieves Ever feels earned Mm -hmm. Most of the time he worms his way Out of one situation or another Via bullshit techie Deus ex machina that That would make Most Batman writers say Bull fucking shit Um There is no personal growth by the end of the story. He has not evolved internally. Everything good that he does, he does because he sees his chances of slipping into Loreline's panties, slipping away from him. And, you know, there's no bargaining chip that is off the table to get that. He just brings up fucking getting married at the worst possible fucking time. Yeah, to the point where you where you just you're rooting for her to shove him naked out of an airlock <laughs> as people of Warline herself. I don't dislike I don't dislike space Hermione Granger. Yeah, sir. But I dislike the fact that she has not developed much more than being number one yet another Deus Ex Machina, mm-hmm. and number two being the real MacGuffin. That Valerian is fixated on this entire time. Yeah. The divining rod dick is just ever pointed at her ass. Cause he, he, he doesn't give a shit about the fucking converter. Mm. He just cares about, will this parlay, parlay my way to the altar?
1: I, I want to back up your point by saying this. What if Han Solo spends the first part of meeting Princess Leia going, I love you, will you marry me? We would hate on yeah. solo. This is not what men want. I don't know who you're writing this for. Like if this is supposed to if this is supposed to be a space opera for chicks, uh, maybe. I don't know. I I, I, I think maybe, you know, uh, given my knowledge of now Twilight and yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey, there is an element out there that you know that they're looking for the prince to instantly fall in love with them and make their non specialness mm-hmm. special. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know how many women are out there are chasing, like, space fantasy and space opera either. So, like, who, again, who did you write this for? Because what guy is going to... Who? Dane DeHaan's character doesn't appeal to any man that I'm aware of. No. 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 Uh, Well, and, you know, space opera and sci-fi fantasy probably
0: appeals to more people than you would think. But here's the problem, and it goes back to why you said that sci-fi is a bit of a hard sell is because you have to go about your world building with a bit of a fine touch, especially when you're making a movie. It's one thing when you have anywhere from 13 to 22 episodes of a 30 minute to hour long prime time live action time slot that you can play with or a streaming deal on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu with those deep, deep Netflix, Disney, Amazon, Amazon pockets to reach yeah. to reach into, it's another entire leaf. You've got anywhere from three hundred to I don't know five hundred pages of a novel, or anywhere from a fifteen to twenty hour plus video game, where you can build things out. But the thing is, this movie is like Avatar, hate fucked the Fifth Element, and the deformed <laughs> baby that came out was our generation's crawl, because. <laughs> it, it <laughs> <laughs> expansive world building but it fails at making any of it coherent significant or letting anything they try to establish fucking breathe you're just introduced to one new race or concept or blah blah, blah or schmageki or fucking mcguffin after another after another after another and you're not given time to invest in hardly any of it except that you know that you're kind of, that you're that you're kind of digging the simple gray people simple gray sexy people that we met in the beginning they see they seem kind of showy, I mean, seem like you want to more people. yeah <laughs> y- you're not even gonna be dealing with them until yeah. well into the until well into the
1: third act by which point you're probably already fucking exhausted yeah let but me, let me let me say one thing and then and we gotta move on. Um it's a very pretty film. Oh, it's gorgeous! Yeah, yeah. The the, the special effects, the visual, the, CGI, the visuals. I mean, I, a little too. I I I wish my. Um, this is the very last thing I'm going to say. It's a gorgeous looking film. the the, the winning this the winningest con uh, the winningest element of this film is the visuals, whether it be the costuming, the special effects, or the uh, the set pieces. With this one, oh, yeah. caveat, With this one caveat. And my son brought this up when I took him to go see Dune in October. He goes like, oh, this good. oh yeah. So my son, and, and I'm going to exaggerate for effect here. My son's like, what the fuck? Why does every science fiction movie have to take place in a desert? You're like, why? 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 With science fiction, space fiction, why is nothing in space and everything is on a desert? Are there only deserts in space? We'll, we'll s- touch on that when we get to John Carter. Oh, yeah, we will. And that, and that is why I wanted, that, that is my transition into it. But my son, he's brilliant. Um, so with that said, before we move on to ye John Carter, let us talk about what this movie could have needed. And this movie desperately needed another pass through editing. But more than that, it needed grammarly. Because don't you understand, Sean, that Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. So download Grammarly today. Go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. John Carter, for God's sakes, is a a 2012 American science fiction action slog. Directed, I'm actually by just uh, directed by Andrew Stanton. Written by Stanton, Mark Andrews, and Michael Chavone. And based on A Princess of Mars from 1912. The first book in the Barsoom series of novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs. The film was produced by Jim Morris, Colin Wilson, and Lindsay Collins. John Carter stars Taylor Kitsch in the title role. Lynn Collins, Samantha Morton, Mark Strong, Ciaran Hins, Dominic West from The Wire... James Purefoy and Willem Dafoe. The film chronicles the first interplanetary okay. adventure of John Carter and his attempt to meet. Hang on one second. Taylor um, Kitsch.
0: What, Taylor Kitsch. What else has he been in? Because I briefly got him mixed up with Taylor Lautner, and I
1: know that's not right. <laughs> okay. The last couple of things Taylor Kitsch has been in. 21 Bridges, Only the Brave, American Assassin, Bling, The Grand Seduction, Lone Survivor, Savage's Battleship. That's what you know him from. In fact, I was right after this, too. Oh, he's also <laughs> fucking Gambit, dude. He's Gambit in X-Men Origins. Oh, that fucker. Yeah, that fucker. <laughs> um, so proud of his first interplanetary adventure of John Carter. Oh, I never getting that movie. movie. Uh, civil, <laughs> not all civil unrest amongst the warring kingdoms of the Barsoom. Um look, we could have done an entire on trial on this and Sean could have spent the first hour of set on trial just talking about the production hell of that. We don't have that kind of time, but read it. It's a goddamn case study. Mm-hmm. Um, it was released March 9th, 2012 uh, in wide release. It's clocks in at over two hours and we'll t- that goes to my issues with Valerian. There's a lot of themes between these three movies. It had a budget of, Three hundred and six point six million dollars. That's fucking Marvel money, people. Marvel, which makes the billions, and it came in dun 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 at two hundred and eighty four point one million dollars. This had historic, historic egg on Disney's face. Like it would take, you know, Disney is kind of one of those too big to fail deals. You know, there's there's just too mm-hmm. many lines of income. Disney to truly, like, if their parks are down, their their movies are up, and vice versa. There's always licensing or something that keeps Disney afloat, even in the dark, dark times. But boy, did John Carter give that company, especially their film industry, a kick in the balls. I mean, I'm... I I know the, the, the timing doesn't totally line up, but I'm wondering how much of this John Carter mess led to Disney just buying other companies because they couldn't make their own films, you know, and... Find their way out of a wet paper bag if they tried, because you know, you know, we get, you know, we get around this time also, fucking Lone Ranger, which was also a historic bomb. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> There's a whole podcast in here, Sean, of just Disney, just terrible Disney movies before Marvel comes along and then Star Wars. It, it's pretty incredible, it, like when you think about they're like the most successful film company currently in, in modern filmmaking where they have come in just 10 to to 15 years. You know what I mean? Like, John Carter is embarrassed.
0: That's not a bad idea.
1: Yeah, there's a discussion to be had here. But um, the plot of John Carter is as follows. (laughs) Stay with me now. This gets convoluted. In 1881, Edgar (laughs) Rose Burroughs attends the funeral of his uncle, John Carter, a former American Civil War Confederate Army captain who died suddenly. Per Carter's instructions, the body is put in a tomb that can be unlocked only from the inside. His attorney gives Carter's personal journal for Burroughs to read. In a flashback to 1868 in the Arizona Territory, Union Colonel power mind you, this is a science fiction story, Union Colonel Powell, Powell arrests Carter with hopes that Carter will help in fighting the local Apache like you do. Carter escapes his holding cell but fails to get far with U.S. Cavalry soldiers in close pursuit. After a run-in with a band of apaches, Carter and a wounded Powell are chased until they hide in a cave that turns out to be filled with gold. A thern appears in the cave at that moment and, surprised by the two men, attacks them with a knife. Carter kills them, but accidentally activates the thern's powerful medallion and is unwittingly transported to a ruined and dying planet. Again, why does every science fiction story have to have a death?
0: That looks suspiciously (laughs) like Arizona.
1: (laughs) Or assume known to Carter as Mars. Because of his different bone density and the planet's low gravity, Carter is able to jump high and perform feats of incredible strength. He is captured by the green Martian Tharks and their Jeddik Tars Tarkus. Elsewhere on Barsoom, the red Martian cities of Helium and Zodanga have been at war for a thousand years. Sab Than, Jeddik of Zodanga, armed with a special weapon obtained from the Thurn leader Matai Shang, <sighs> proposes a... Se- no one's named Steve in, in space, by the way. Nobody uh, proposes a ceasefire and an end to the war by marrying the princess of Helium, Dejah Thoris. The princess escapes and is rescued by Carter. Carter, Dejah, and Tarkas' daughter, Sola, reach a spot in a sacred river to find a way for Carter to get back to Earth. They discover that the medallions are powered by a ninth ray that is also the source of Sab-Than's weapon. They are then attacked by Tharks under the direction of Shang. Carter and Deja are taken back to Zodanga. A demoralized Deja grudgingly agrees to marry Sab. And then gives Carter instructions on how to use the medallion to return to Earth. Carter decides to stay and is captured by Shang, who explains to him the purpose of the Therns and how they manipulate the civilizations of different worlds to their doom. Feeding off the planet's resources in the process and intend to do the same thing with Barsoom for choosing Than to rule the planet. Carter goes back to the, the Tharks with Solo to request their help. There they discover Tarkas has been overthrown by a ruthless brute, Tal Haujus. Carter and an injured Tarkas battle with two enormous great white apes in an arena before Carter kills Hajus, thereby, thereby becoming the leader of the Tharks. The Thark army cha- charges on helium and defeats the Zodangan army while Than is killed and Shang is forced to escape. Carter becomes Prince of Healing by marrying Deja. On their first night, Carter decides to stay forever on Mars and throws away his medallion. Seizing this opportunity, Shang briefly reappears and gives Carter another challenge, sending him back to Earth. Carter embarks on a long quest to find one of their medallions on Earth. After several years, he appears to die suddenly and asks for unusual, for unusual funeral arrangements, consistent with his having found a medallion. Since his return to Mars would leave his body in a coma-like state and makes Burroughs his protector. Back in the present, Burroughs runs back to Carter's tomb and uses his clues to open it. Just as he does, so a thurn appears and raises a weapon before Carter appears and shoots them in the back. He reveals <clears throat> that he had never found another medallion. Instead, he devised a scheme to lure a thurn from hiding, thus winning Shang's challenge. Carter then uses the dead Thurns medallion to return to Barsoom. Finn. Uh, all right, Sean. You want to unpack this nonsense? Sean, did you freeze or did you die? All right, I think Sean uh John's camera actually froze. But that face tells you everything you need to know about John Carter. Um <clears throat> uh I'll start here while Sean figures out what's going on with his camera. Let me say this. Um <laughs> this is a slog to get through. Like I was kind of um I was kind of excited for this. I mean, I knew it was I knew it was a bomb financially. I knew people were not tremendously interested in it, but uh, I thought maybe it might at least be good. Just people, you know, as as what happens with science fiction. People are not interested in things. they don't know And a book written in 1912. Presumably (laughs) might not resonate with people in. What year was this nonsense made? Um, You know, in 2012. Which I think is a, a, a big problem with a lot of Hollywood, uh, you know, g- greenlighting a lot of Hollywood projects is they greenlight stuff that was popular in the yesteryear thinking it'll still find an audience today because why wouldn't it? And look, sometimes they're not wrong and it's, it's not the world's worst thing to take to take a flyer on something um, that might find a new audience once they know about it. But you are taking a chance and not and a lot of times more often than not, you don't find that audience anymore. Uh, Robert and I have talked about this in the past, like, you know, Tarzan was incredibly popular once upon a time. It has difficulty finding an audience these days. The last Tarzan movie I think bombed. So things like that, uh, so John Carter in and of itself, there's a couple of really good set pieces, really good, uh, fun science fiction bits, um, action sequences, him jumping around, uh, good use of special effects there and wire work and whatnot. And those scenes are fun. My problem with John Carter. Uh, it's funny, watching the Ben Hur movie with my son the, uh, on Easter, we were both talking about how you're okay. sold on. One second, you're sold on Ben Hur that you're going to get a movie full of chariot races based on the trailer, and you get one chariot race and maybe some training chariot races and one <clears throat> horse. And that, and the rest of it is just endless <clears throat> amounts of talking. And I'm going to go to Sean in half a second. But that is my biggest problem with John Carter is that while, while there are great action set pieces, there's so few and far with so much talking to get through. And it's not particularly engaging. And Taylor Kitsch is kind of blah. Like he's funny, at least as Gambit, like, you know, <laughs> point and laugh kind of a way. Uh, and there's some other stuff that he's been in where he's passable, but here same problem, you know, a little bit better than Dane DeHaan, but it's still the same problem. Like this was not the right lead to engage a mass audience and the movie flops because of it. John, your thoughts on John Carter.
0: So, I mean, part of the problem is the fact that the third are the only ones who really get any significant development.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, Yeah, nailed it in one. There's... (laughs) Not not only are there not enough of those big, thrilling action set pieces, but amidst all the talking that's going on in between them, nobody is really saying anything significant. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're going from one extreme to another. We're going from someone trying to put 100 pounds of shit into into about into about a a teaspoon with valerian to now there being bizarrely minimal world building going on okay why should i care about any of these races why are they even fighting what makes what makes them what makes them different um what, what I look to when it comes to science, science fiction and world building is I think about the matrix and I think about how in the first movie, if you never got the two sequels that we got and you just had the first movie in the span of one single sequence, you got enough clear exposition Delivered in a concise manner To understand everything that was going on We always come back to the opening To the opening of the Lord of the Rings You learn Pretty much damn near Everything you need to You need to know to start the movie Just from that One opening narration
1: Not to mention that opening narration Is a giant ass battle scene yeah, and you get you get everything you need to know from that. Um, you know what another good one is? Valerian. Max, hang on, Mad Max Fury Road. Like, have you ever watched the beginning of Mad Max Fury Road? It. Okay, so no, uh, I have seen it. Okay, so Tom, um, uh, help me, Hardy. Thank you, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. The beginning of that movie is him like Elmo, um, first person is the camera point of view running through tunnels and nearly like jumping off a cliff. It's a very frenetic, engaging opening sequence. And then, you know, what everyone remembers about Fury road is the, you know, is the two hour car chase. But, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, like you, you gotta, you know, it's like going to a concert. You don't start off with your ballad. You know, you don't no. start off with your like acoustic solo. You start off with, you know, your banger. <laughs> You know, you start mm-hmm. off with you start off with an energetic welcome to the show, everybody. Get everyone out of their seats. You don't start off mm-hmm. with "hello, darkness, my old friend," <laughs> you know. And, and the problem with Valerian, the problem with John Carter, is a lot of this is like the, 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 they they want to like seduce you into the movie. Like, nope. If you don't engage, you don't engage me right away. You're gonna lose me.
0: No. Well, and the other problem that you have is. And I will kind of stand by this opinion. the The Tharks are supposed to be one of the big focal points of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And yet that they are while they're very territorial, they're profoundly neutral. Okay, there's a reason why the Lord of the Rings is not all about the hobbits. Yeah because, You can't make a profoundly neutral race that interesting. Right. You can't do it unless you're going to, unless the whole thing is going to hinge on them finally taking a side and you're going to really lean hard into that, into that shifting balance, but they don't do that that's why in lord of the rings you have a few hobbits and you have a bunch of other races who have their own things going on amongst themselves and between each other um so and then you've got you've got helium which i think isn't isn't helium the the major city that's under siege yeah sure that, that, yeah i think i think so Mm-hmm. It's it's also got that whole Transformers thing going on that if you're not careful, you will forget everything that happened in that movie by the next day.
1: Yeah, I always think um, about like Brian and Family Guy, where he's taking Adderall and he invents his own like science fiction world. Yeah, it just sounds Yeah, yeah, A- and again, you know,
0: you you have to do it with a fine touch and you have to be mindful as you suggested of the fact that attention spans for movies have diminished greatly Mm -hmm. once upon a time. Yeah. It was nothing to get people to sit through a two hour, a two hour movie, 120 minutes. No problem. Nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, Unless you happen to be making a Marvel or a DC movie. You better get your shit in, in about in about 90 minutes. I'm reminded of a story that uh, Chris Jericho has told off and on about mm-hmm. um I want to say, I think it was one of his first WCW matches. I could be wrong here. Um, it was retold on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff That kind of stuck out to me. He was going over to the backstage with whoever he was supposed to go out there with. I want to say it was even, I think it was even supposed to be like outright mm-hmm. or somebody. And He's going over all this stuff that he wants to do. And whoever his opponent is says, okay, pick the five things <laughs> you want to do mm-hmm. out of that list, like the ones you want to do most. And we'll make sure we get those in. It's 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 like a weird balance between Valerian trying to do too much, Valerian is trying to do, you know, the the 26 different high spots in a 10-minute match that Jericho wanted wanted to do. And then over here, we've got John Carter that's doing Goldberg and Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania 20.
1: (laughs) It's a good comparison. And this is another one where... We have this giant space opera, this just wonderful fantasy. We will we will take you to another world. You took me yet again to a desert. Like I'm telling you right now, at Mark Randall Studios, your movies have to be 90 minutes, your budgets have to be less than 50 million and you if you shoot in a desert, I'm kicking you off my lot. Okay. I will defend this. Mm-hmm. Um, had they
0: not started the movie in in the long ago, in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. Having Mars look like Arizona might not have been so bad. Sure. Because, and yes, I know that originally it's it's in the mountains and then it moves to the desert. But the problem is he still kind of leaves Earth in the desert. And then he wakes up in the desert. And the problem is the American Southwest... If you want to talk about a convenient location in America that absolutely has an otherworldly quality mm-hmm. about it, like 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 you dozed off and you woke up on another world, mm-hmm. yeah, I would absolutely point to the Arizona or New Mex or New Mexico deserts for Look, that. Yeah, one, Dune, yeah, one, Dune,
1: Dune has its desert landscapes too, but if you're if you're gonna do right. Here's the problem with the desert. Yes, it can be picturesque. It can also be really, really boring. Okay, yeah. if you've ever driven yeah. through the Panhandle of Texas, it's like driving through limbo. Yes. Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> you, it beautiful. is the middle distance between, oh, yeah. between dimensions. Yeah, it's- but I mean, but, but it would have been it would have been
0: more effective, I think. And I don't, I don't know the novel. I don't know if maybe the novel, you know, started out in the mountains of northern Arizona, and that was why they stuck with it. But hell, if you had had it, this is during the gold rush, supposedly, mm-hmm. or, or somewhere thereabouts. Have it start in Alaska, have it start in the tundra of Alaska, and then have it shift mm-hmm. to uh, to Arizona, because yeah, that's a convincing Martian atmosphere, right, right there. But otherwise, it's just it's kind of underwhelming. Yeah, when you're just going from desert to desert
1: right yeah it's a bland looking movie with some fun action sequences and less than thrilling you know like i like dominic west and everything and he's a fine villain in this but
0: i the
1: whole the whole thing is underwhelming you don't have enough movie to support your budget no um i had the same comment about valerian there's not enough movie here to support your budget if you you know you go to make captain america I don't remember what the budget for the first Avenger was, but I have to imagine it was not the typical Marvel budget at the time because that's phase one, and, and it's Captain America, an untested property at best. Um, But the reason why you get $200 million to make Civil War is because, A, you're phase three now, B, it's essentially an Avengers movie, and C, it's the third Captain America's movie because the second one made a billion dollars. If I remember, or if it didn't make a billion, it made awfully close. The Winter Soldier did very well. My point is, like, you can't, you, you can't start, you have to start modest with these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to jump right into Barbarella after I make the statement. But you, you have to start with a modest, easily understandable, easily relatable concept. You know, the thing about the Lord of the Rings, and we keep comparing all of these to that. What made Lord of the Rings Lord of the Rings was not, and these all helped, these were all legs on the stool, but the thing that makes Lord of the Rings was not the high fantasy. It was not the costumes. It was not the landscapes. It was not the action sequences. Those all help. The story about the Lord of the Rings was about uh, temptation. It was about uh, going that extra mile, giving it your all, and failing. Something we can all relate to. Frodo's journey the, un, you know, the, the unbearable burden of carrying an evil ring that he can't get rid of, and he can't give it to anyone else, he has to do this, or everyone's going to die around him. And he's so small, and he's so insignificant, and he doesn't want any of it. And that is exactly why he's the right person to, to go on this mission from hell. Mm-hmm. That is something people can relate to. Strip everything else of Lord of the Rings out of there. Strip, you know, um, you know gymnastics fucking Legolas, doing uh american ninja warrior you know escape, you know throw <laughs> throw out all the special effects throw out everything that you know about it and you're just watching this poor guy deteriorate on his way to hell because Maybe there's we- no other choice in the matter yeah,
0: and even better, you know, you throw all that stuff out. You put Tom Bombadil back in. Okay, I'm done. Tom
1: Bombadil? Yeah, um, but that's it one resists. thing. There's nothing relatable about this John Carter story. Is is my no. point? No. There's no, there's no human element that makes people go, "Oh, well, I don't like all of this." You know, my my boyfriend brought me to this, and I don't really like this sort of thing. But I could really identify with his story. What is John Carter's fucking story here? What, Sean? I, I ask you, what is what are we trying to say with this? It's, it's like just Disney has this bunch of IP lying around, you know, or I can't remember the, um, the phrase for it, but like, you know, where, where it's up for grabs and anyone can use it because it's over 100 years old. And it's just like <laughs> s- sitting there and they, they figure it's an easy buck to make something with it, but they don't actually have a story to tell. The thing with a lot of the best stories is I am compelled to talk about this thing that we can all relate to. And I want to tell a story about it, mm-hmm. and that is why we like the things we like. The Dark Knight, I think, is you know a story about uh, an uncontrollable madness driving everything around it uh, into the brink. You know, it, it's a story about anarchy. It's a story about you know what do you do when you're dealing with this crazy element that makes no sense to you and you can't control. There's nothing you can do with it. How do you handle it when you know you have everything else under well under control? but then in walks chaos and it and it turns everything on its head. That's scary. That is how many of us live in a world where, you know, our entire world could turn upside down because somebody introduced an element of chaos into it. We all know a Joker, you know, we all know that person who we kind of, kind of keep them at a distance because if you let them too close into your life, your whole life fucking turns upside down. That is relatable. Yes. They dressed it up with Batman stuff. But that's essentially what the Dark Knight was about. It was, you know, it was also about the nature of heroism, you know, the hero that we need, not the one that we want. That so- that sort of crap. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot of stuff in the Dark Knight that people could relate to, and on top of which, it was a wicked cool movie, bro. Um, like that's the thing that's missing from John Carter. It feels like a story they were compelled to tell because they had cheap IP lying around, not because they had a compar- compelling story to tell. Anything else about John Carter before we move on? No, I, I, I really, I really
0: got nothing else. I, I can't recommend it for any reason whatsoever about the only positive thing left that I can say about it is once more Willem Dafoe is in a shit movie at, but (laughs) God damn, if he doesn't still put in
1: the work, he's still, still the best part of it. You know what John Carter really needed, Sean, that it didn't have, didn't have cool music. No, it it really didn't. Needed better music. And you know where you can find cool music for free? Where? Uh, Amazonmusic.com, don't you understand? get slash W2M Network is the link for a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Uh, if you complete the sign-up process, you agree to the 30 days, you can uh, stream all the music, all 100 million songs currently on, the, on uh, the server over at Amazon. If you think it, it's got it, uh, it's a great place to get find playlists, new music. You can check out catalogs of entire bands. And you can do that on us. Click the link, sign up for it. It helps us, and you get free music. Who doesn't love free music? Again, let's get amazonmusic.com/slash W2M network. All right. This last one's a bit of a passion project for me: <laughs> Barbarella, starring Jane Fonda. I've actually never seen it before. It's a, it's sort of a cultural landmark. Um, it's, it's often referenced, and it's referenced in a clutch, clutch a song that clutch I like um uh, Sean Mute Mike. Sean Mute Mike. so so barbarella was one of those movies that i've heard about in science fiction i've i've always wanted to watch and when i came up with this idea to do john carter and valerian i and needed a third film i'm like this is an opportune time to watch barbarella and talk about it so we'll do it briefly because we are running low on time here but uh barbarelle is a 1968 science fiction film directed by roger vadim based on the french comic series of the same name by jean-claude forest it stars jane fonda as the title character a space traveler and representative of the united earth government sent to find duran duran who was hungry like the wolf who has created a weapon, weapon that could destroy humanity because don't we all the supporting cast includes john philip law anita Pallenberg, milo o'shea marcel Mosseau, david hemmings ugo tag Tognazzi, and claude dauphin um at a budget of upwards of nine million it didn't make it. <laughs> it it uh 5.5 million in north american rentals it was and it was released in the year of our lord 1968. uh so speeding through this in an unspecified future because of course space adventure Arella is assigned by the president of Earth to retrieve Dr. Duran Duran from the Tau Ceti planetary system. Duran is the inventor of the laser-powered superweapon called the positronic ray, which Earth leaders fear will fall into the wrong hands, because it always does. Barbarella crash lands on Tau Ceti's 16th planet and is knocked unconscious by two children. Take a drink every time Barbarella is knocked unconscious in this movie. They bring her into the wreckage of a spaceship where she is bound and attacked by several dolls with razor-sharp teeth barbara is rescued by mark hand the catchman who patrols the ice looking for errant children like you do hand tells her that duran is in the city of sogo and offers to take her back to her ship in his ice boat she expresses her appreciation assuring him that the government will certainly provide him recompense for his troubles and to let her know in the meantime whether there is anything he needs or that she can do for him hand says you could let me make love to you barbarel expresses confusion because, of course, she does. Because for centuries, people of Earth don't have intimate, physical, non-sexual, sensual experiences until first rapport is achieved. <laughs> you want to actually touch and have sex, says Sandra Bullock in Demolition Man? Uh, Hans, boy, are there just themes in science fiction. Han suggests having sex in his bed instead, which Barbarella is initially put off by. She tells Hand, because, <laughs> of course, she is. She tells Han that on Earth, only poor people can't afford to have psychocardiograms and pills engaged in such a primitive, distracting, and inefficient activity. It's amazing this movie came out during the sexual revolution. Since other activities successfully provide ego support and self-esteem. However, she relents. (laughs) She relents and discovers she enjoys it. Because, of course, she does. Although, admitting she understands why on Earth sex is considered distracting. It certainly is, Ollie. Barbarella leaves the planet and crashes into a labyrinth inhabited by outcasts from Sogo. She is found by Pygar, a blind angel who has lost the will to fly. Pygar introduces her to Professor Ping, who offers to repair Barbarella's ship. Pygar flies her to Sogo after she restores his will to fly after having sex with him. Read into that what you will, people. When they arrive, Pygar and Barbarella are captured by Sogo's Black Queen and her concierge. The concierge describes the Mathmos, living energy in liquid form, powdered by evil thoughts and used as an energy source in Sogo. Pygar endures a mock crucifixion and Barbarella is placed in the cage where hundreds of birds prepare to attack her. She is rescued by Dildano. Dildano, leader of the local underground who joins her in pursuit of Duran. Dildano. Dildano, 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 won't you cry for me. Offers her an invisible key to a chamber of dreams, don't you understand, where the queen sleeps and sends her back to Sogo. Barbarella is promptly recaptured, take a drink, uh, by the concierge. She places her in an excessive pleasure machine, which looks like she's inside of a piano, which includes fatal sexual pleasures. Uh, She outlasts the machine, because of course she does, which shuts down. The concierge shocked at its destruction. Yes, the woman's vagina has destroyed yet another man's machine. <sighs> it is revealed as Duran, who has aged 30 years due to mat- the Mathmos. He wants to become Sogo's new leader and overthrow the Black Queen, which requires his positronic reign access to the Chamber of Dreams. Duran takes Barbarella. To the chamber, locking her inside with the invisible key, she meets the Queen, who says that if two people are in the chamber, the mathmost will devour them. Duran seizes control of the Sogo as Dildano and his rebels begin to attack their city. The Black Queen retaliates, releasing the mathmos to destroy Sogo. Protected by what the white Black Queen calls Barbarella's innocence... They escape the Mathmos and find Pygar. The angel clutches them in his arms and flies off. And Bobarella asks Pygar why you saved Tyrant. He replies, an angel has no memories, Sean. Don't you understand what I'm trying to tell you? An angel has no memories. Unmute your mic and your witness, sir.
0: Uh when you were talking about Pygar, I just couldn't help couldn't help but go make my way back home when I learn to fly.
1: <laughs> all right. We gotta wrap this gotta up in like five, five minutes. So all minute, right, minute. all right, fine.
0: I'll make this as brief as I can. Mm-hmm. I fucking love this movie. Mm. For those who say that sex has no place in cinema, that it has no place in mainstream movies, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> Barbarella, yes, is a sexual character. But what she is not, she's never really portrayed as an overt diss. Mm-hmm. She's never really portrayed as being sexually. Well, I would even, I, I would I would even kind of waver a little whether, whether she's being sexually victimized. She's pretty much confidence and has a carefree, really playful quality about it that really kind of permeates right through to the visual style of the movie. There's a, there's a kind of whimsical kitsch about it that I, I think tells you right off the bat that, yeah, this is absolutely made by a French filmmaker and definitely not an American one. Um, she's never under sexual under really any kind of, Despicable insidious sexual Siege even when she's in the Infinite sexual pleasure machine uh, The the, the power Of her sexual energy is too much For it and shorts the fucking thing Out it's basically It's basically weaponized What a metaphor that is Yeah I, I like the fact that She kind of goes From being Really Squicked out by more natural sexuality to kind of coming around and opening and opening right up to it. And that kind of becomes a little bit of a theme of her adventures that runs right, that runs right through it. And it's a movie that never takes itself too seriously. It never really lets the men around Barbarella kind of become her oppressors for very long she's kind of on equal footing with them just about the entire the entire way through yeah she may not be a a combat hardened sarah connor or ellen ripley but she's definitely not some not necessarily some dull-witted dits either um, yeah, very, is,
1: i think she's a very sex positive um, absolutely um, yeah Solid, solid female, female heroine, heroin. and I think this is yeah, very much a, a metaphor, metaphor for a women's agency, agency and sexual, sexual ownership. ownership. You know, well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You, you kind of, you kind of cracked wise about I can't believe this took this was made during the height of the sexual revolution. No, I think it's abundantly apparent throughout that that it was a that it was a product of that. It's just that it's a progression of that mm. liberation from the start of the movie through it, yeah. and it's. And I say this as, as the utmost compliment and kind of I'm kind of surprised and fascinated by it. This has got to be the least raunchy sex movie that I have ever that I have ever seen. and through mo- through, through so much of it, you know a lot of that is carried by the fact that Jane Fonda is kind of so carefree and comfortable in everything that she's doing. And I don't know anything about the behind the scenes making of it, Mm -hmm. but either she's a better actor than I ever gave her credit for. I gave her, I gave her, I gave her plenty of credit for being pretty accomplished or she really was just kind of vibing with the whole theme of the theme of the movie and was really down for what, for what it was going for. And the result is something that, I would throw back in the face of anybody who would throw out there that pretty much your only option when it comes to sexual women in films is that they're objects, they're prey, or they're motivators. In this one, she's none of the above.
1: Yep. I want to uh, jump in real quick and just say, my one, somebody asked me, was I high when I was watching this? No. No. Uh, <laughs> But I can see why people would think that it is a trippy movie. But to Sean's point about the the sex positive part of it is, I, you know, there's a there's a cultural shaming of women who are pro-sex in this country. It's not like that in other parts of the world. Um, and I think this is this movie's a tacit reminder that just because you like sex doesn't make you a bad person. And just because you like sex doesn't mean you're going to have sex with everybody. You know, there's, there's still discernible taste and, you know, decision making that goes into it. And I think that that's what Barbarella plays around with. It's like, let's let's take somebody who has agency, <clears throat> sexual agency, and let's let let's let her say no. Let's let her say yes. and Let's let her go on an adventure. I think my only issue with Barbarella is the narrative cohesion, uh, because the sexual themes of it are just fine. And I think it's it's kind of a fun stuff. You know, You want to show it in a class about, you know, women and sex. I think it'd be a fun thing to talk about. But in terms of film structure, Barbarella goes on, it's kind of Alice in Wonderland. It's one set piece into the next set piece into the next set piece into the next set piece. And you don't really get a sense of the journey she's on. She's just, it's one obstacle after another until they ran out of film reel, you know? Um, And that ending sequence with her and the sex piano just dr- it's funny to me, but it just drones on and on and on after a while, and I'm just like, all right already. Though I I do I again I have to laugh at that. The power of the woman's vagina broke the machine. I it, that is never gonna stop making me laugh. I don't care who you are. That shit's funny. Um. All right. So with that said, I'm gonna unmute Sean's mic here, but I'm gonna quick do my, do my plugs. Nope. I'm muting nope, it again. I'm, it again. <laughs> I'm gonna do my plugs, and Sean's gonna do his plugs, and then we're out of here. So just real quick, um, tomorrow we're going to review the sequence of Dumbledore, Wednesday, the new Ghost album, and then we have a double shot on Thursday of Green Eggs and Ham Season 2 and um, Lower Decks Season (laughs) 1. Dave is finally getting his turn of something, something he wanted me to do, and he had to wait forever for it, so we're finally getting to do Star Trek Lower Decks. Please like and subscribe on YouTube. Please like and subscribe on your podcast uh, catcher of choice, whether it be iTunes, um, Stitcher, Spotify. We're big on Spotify. Listen to us there. We're know we're right there for you. So uh, it helps out. It helps us out. Uh, if you can leave a comment, any comment will do. Give us a rating so that the more people that rate us, the more people will find us. The more the podcast grows, the more things that we can do for our loyal audience members. Like put on, like get on Rotten Tomatoes. That's my goal. I get on Rotten Tomatoes, I'm retiring. All right, I'm going to shut up so Sean can give his plugs and we can get out of here. Yeah.
0: All right, everybody. You can find me elsewhere online on Twitter and Instagram. Both of those, I am at Comer Codex. Uh, be prepared for lots of hockey rants, gaming, wrestling, food porn, workout posts, um, warning. Things do get a little sociopolitical at times. Not going to apologize for that. Uh, and elsewhere, if you really want some more entertainment, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday nights, usually from about 8 p.m. Central Time, you can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Codex. Uh, I am finally back to streaming regularly again after a long, long time of dithering about it. <laughs> In fact, we just kind of finished my comeback series going through Wolfenstein The New Order. We are now playing through a delightful 8-bit love letter to the classic Ninja Gaiden series called The Messenger. And then once we finish that up, we are coming back to Wolfenstein for Wolfenstein The Old Blood. And then we're going to be alternating between Wolfenstein and the Batman Arkham series for probably about the next month or two with the exception of my diverting over to playing uh, dream daddy and monster prom for pride month. Um, one small disclaimer, I am not going to be streaming this week, however, because I am going to be out of town in Kansas city for family body art day with my fiance and my kiddo, uh, celebrating a birthday, closing out my storage locker. And, um, Having what I consider to be the second best damn pizza in the world, Minsky's, because it's not a trip to Kansas City for me until I get until I get either my Minsky's or my Quick Trip hot dogs or my barbecue or some combination of all three.
1: All right, folks, uh, thank you for joining us here on Triple Feature. That's Sean Comer. You're not. I'm Mark Rattledge. Be well. Be safe. And behave.